Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming and Zooming with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, as we are now in the amazing fourth month of this shelter in place. Our show today is our 13th episode, and we are joined by two terrific guests to help us to dive into some crucial topics that have been on many of our minds over the last weeks and months, if not before. We'll be addressing themes of race, labor, police, and the left. And we are so fortunate to have with us today our two guests. First, we'll have Cedric Johnson, associate professor from the University of Illinois at Chicago, author of, among other books, the book Revolutionary, From Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, which is a terrific study and is a frequent commentary uh, online from Cedric on issues of race and class and contemporary politics. We will also be joined by Claire Hammonds a little later in the show. We'll say hello to her now and, and touch back with her later. She is professor of practice at UMass Amherst in labor studies and among other hats is the co-editor of the recent book, which I've been very much enjoying, uh, Labor in the Time of Trump. I'd like to first just welcome you both, welcome you Cedric, welcome you Claire to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Great. And Claire, we're going to welcome you to the conversation anytime you feel like you want to dive in. But I want to drill down with Cedric a little bit uh, first. Uh, first off, thank you both for being here. I know this is a crazy uh, time we're in. I know, Cedric, you've been traveling. I know you have, both have many commitments. I've been appreciating your work from afar for a long time, both of you. Um, and just thank you for making the time today. Uh, Cedric, starting with you, by all accounts, we've been living through a whirlwind of a time. From COVID-19 to the recent widespread uprisings in the wake of the police murder, most, most uh, obviously of George Floyd, but also of so many others. How do you see the current recent uprisings we've been seeing across hundreds of cities and towns across the US? What do you think drove people to the streets? I mean, some causes may be obvious and some not so much. And what do you think have been the, the most important effects of these uh, rebellions, some are calling them riots, some are calling them uprisings. Um, and what, if, what are the potential openings that you see being created right now through this kind of uprising? And what if any dangers or obstacles do you see uh, to actually making lasting you know, progressive or transformative change out of this moment? 
I know that's a lot, but having read your work, you're really, I think, a, a great guide for these issues. So please take it away, Cedric. I was going to say, man, is that the only question I have to answer? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so let me start with the last part of what you said. When you mentioned, you know, you sort of asked the question, is this uh, an uprising? Is it a rebellion? You know, it seems like we always end up in these debates about um, the nomenclature of it. Is it a rebellion? Is it a riot? Is it an uprising? And I think, I think in this case, it's really all of those things, right? That what we, what we saw, witnessed the last month um, is not really reducible to Black Lives Matter, even though Black Lives Matter continued to serve as a powerful banner for a lot of the frustration that people were feeling. Certainly the death of, of um, George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd, um, the murders of others like Ahmaud Arbery, um, Drake Sean Reed, um, Breonna Taylor within the last uh, few months were contributing, right? The, the pressure was building. But I think we have to think about those events of the past month as being um, at least a, a multiplicity of things happening at once, uh, a clash of different uh, ideological dispositions, different hopes, different aspirations. Um, and I think that's been frustrating for some people. I mean, you can hear it even from some Black Lives Matter activists who've been worried and have worried and spoken out loud about having lost control of the, the narrative. There's been multiple um, editorials written to that, that uh, extent that basically make that claim, right? That there's concerns that now other forces are taking over and hijacking um, a Black Lives Matter uh, politics. This is the way I would try to summarize it. I think the most, the, the broadest possible sentiment that we witness has been um, a rebellion or a rejection of illiberal behavior, whether that's in the form of police, right, and the killings of black civilians. Um, but also I think this administration's response to the pandemic, which seems rather callous, which seems, um, you know, indifferent towards the struggles and needs of, of working class people, particularly black and brown communities. And we know that he's been that way since he was elected, right? So this is not new. But I think in this moment, right, as people have been able to shelter at home, and have been paying attention to the events outside their, their windows, finally, you know, we see this explosion of um, resistance or rejection of illiberalism as it's manifest both in terms of policing, but also um, the Trump administration, right? So that's one layer. I think um, Black Lives Matter activists have been pushing for real and concrete changes within police departments for a while now. And even before Black Lives Matter, we've had numerous struggles to try to reform police departments and carceral power more generally, right? So I think those, again, those, those same forces have had a chance to regroup and advance right now within this, this context of popular uprisings in every state in over 500 mm -hmm. different cities, right? Um, the other thing I would say, so you've got the, the basic rebellion against illiberal behavior, but you also have the Black Lives Matter activists and also, I think that we could also talk about the George Floyd rebellion, right, or George Floyd protests alongside the Donald Trump riots, right? So we, we saw many people engaging in, in looting of stores um, that, you know, it was a multiracial crowd. This wasn't the same as, uh, you know, late 60s um, riots, right, in Newark in 1967 or in pretty much every major city in 1968 after King was assassinated. This wasn't ghettoized rebellion, right? This wasn't, you couldn't really make the claim that people always make when we see 
black rebellions where, you know, why would they burn down their neighborhoods? That wasn't the case here, right? I mean, it was looting here in Chicago that was widespread. It was beyond, it was both within the, the major commercial districts, right, which is something unheard of before that people looted the Magnificent Mile and um, parts of the, the Loop and State Street. But there was looting of malls and other, you know, um, relatively affluent uh, districts around the city, right? So this was, a, this was a much broader phenomenon. The scale was unprecedented. And I think in some ways, maybe it was more akin to like Civil War era, you know, Southern bread riots, right? There were many people who are hard pressed. We've got over 40 million people unemployed. We need to think about what that, how that factors into the scale and how many people were out there on the streets and, and how many people took advantage of the chaos to sort of meet their basic needs, which have been denied by this administration, by the shutdown of the economy, and by the job loss that we've seen um, you know, over the last, past few months. The last thing I'll lay on top of this, right, so you've got illiberal rebellion, which is, you know, everybody's sort of, we're, we're, we're done with racism, we're done with this behavior from the administration. We've got Black Lives Matter protests who sort of reunite and reemerge. Um, we've got the bread riots. And then we also have uh, within the corporate world, and this, I think people have downplayed this. I've heard too many activist friends who just, you know, sort of brushed aside the corporate response as simply co-optation, as um, pandering and, and what have you. But I think this is significant, right? It's significant both that you'd see universities and various corporations um, embrace a, a particular kind of anti-racism in such a full, you know, full-bodied way. I mean, this, 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 this is going to matter, I think, in some ways within the context of those workplaces for black and brown people who, who work there. Um, and it may, it may matter in ways that we can't fully anticipate just yet. But I think it also sets up a situation where those with power are going to dictate what an anti-racism is going to mean in real institutional terms, right? And we need to be aware of that. So I don't think it's insignificant. I think it actually, it may have longer term effects than even the kinds of things that we are doing on the streets and in, in city council meetings over the next months uh, to come. So I think this is a, a, a moment that's pregnant with all sorts of possibilities. Um, but I also think that there are too many intellectuals and too many academics in particular who are giddy about this moment and who think that somehow this is the beginning of something as prefigurative. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not so uh, optimistic, right? I mean, I think we have to look at the balance of forces in the society at this moment. And while we, we are in a better position than we've been historically, um, there's still a lot of other work to be done. And I think, it, I think it requires really sober thinking on our part and really paying attention to, again, the different forces that are at play within cities and communities and other places where we, we live and work. Yeah, I mean, thanks for all of that, Cedric. You really did address that whole question, even though it sounded like it could have been the topic for a seminar. Uh, I mean, following up on, you know, I mean, one of the themes in your work I see is that you often draw out complexities that are not being dealt with, uh, at least not uh, overtly in a lot of other places within movement discourse, as well as uh, kind of progressive or would-be radical academic discourse. And mm -hmm. one of the, the, the things I noticed about your article in this forthcoming or this recently released book that actually Claire's going to talk about in a bit, Labor in the Time of Trump, you have a chapter on policing, right? And one of the things I noticed in that, in that chapter um, was the way in which you 
take issue or at least, again, complicate. It's not that you're negating it, but you complicate a you know, kind of prevalent narrative that seems to have reemerged, which is firing a lot of people up, right? And mm. you know, we, for good reason, but that's the kind of narrative, the historical narrative of kind of like where the police came from, what police, what, where the nature of the problem with policing that, you know, the crisis in policing or the crisis for the people that policing's created. And specifically this notion that like the police today are essentially just a derivative descendant kind of continuing more or less without much change, the work of slave catchers, mm. right? Going back to the 19th century, you know, slave catchers in the North, perhaps slave, you know, kind of patrols in the South. And you, you know, I think in a, a very deft, but kind of sharp way suggest that to find the answer to like why we have this policing crisis now, we might look not, and not to say we should ignore that more distant history, but need to look a little more recently at more recent changes in the city and politics and economics and in policing itself. Could you right. say a little about how you kind of trace out the genealogy of the policing crisis right now and, and how you tell that history? And you know, if you want to say a little more about how that narrative is often received and why, why these people sometimes seem to have trouble kind of engaging that more complex narrative in this, in this age that we're in. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, on some level, right, there's, there's, there's the idea that many people have on the left that if people are mobilizing around it, then it must be right, right? And, and I think we need to remind ourselves that we can actually organize and we can be motivated by wrong ideas, right? I mean, that's people can mobilize and, and organize around the wrong ideas and be captivated by the wrong ideas. That should be that much should be clear in the times that we're living through right now, even before the George Floyd uh, protest. Um, for me, it's not a it's not a full on rejection of the fact that you know uh, slave catchers, slave patrols were there to protect property. It is a consistent thread between that phenomenon, you know, in, in antebellum uh, America and uh, contemporary, um, you know, carceral power. I'm not saying they're not, they're totally unrelated. But I do think that if we want to change the times that we're living in, we need to be clear about how we ended up in this particular moment. And I think the, the idea of historical referencing, going back and talking about slave patrols, is nifty. It fits a particular sort of sense of anti-racism. It also fits this idea that nothing has changed, right? And that we're looking at the same problems being repeated again and again over history. I think that's a bad way of thinking about history. I think we need to both understand that there's some aspects of, of power um, that manifest differently in different historical moments. Um, I think we also need to be clear that there is something such as historical change, right? That it may not be all encompassing. It may not be um, exactly what we want, but that things have changed historically for African-Americans, right? They were not in the same position we were in, in during the antebellum period. I mean, no historian of American history who actually spends time in the archives will make that sort of um, assertion in their work unless they're simply trying to, you know, engage in a certain kind of polemic about the, the, the consistency, the durability of racism as a problem, right? We know that, you know, that we're living in a different moment. So for me, in terms of talking about prisons, I think it's more important, prisons as well as policing, it's more important for us to think about the, um, the remaking of the, uh, the notion of class coming out of the, um, the New Deal and the expansion of the, the, um, the consumer society, right? And what that means in concrete terms, what it means for what 
cities look like, what it means for um, how people think of themselves, their work that they do, and what their aspirations might be in the society, how people think about capital, right? Because there are radical transformations that come out of the New Deal, as well as the, the post-war turn towards what might be more, um, uh, I think, more accurately termed uh, commercial Keynesianism, right? Because some things are lost when we move from the pre-war New Deal moment to what's happening during the Truman administration uh, onwards. I mean, for one thing, labor power is greatly curtailed, right? The power of, of organized labor um, from Taft-Hartley Taft onwards. There's also um, the expansion of the consumer society, in particular, the expansion of suburbia, right? That makes a certain kind of life available to many Americans that they had never dreamed of, right? People who had survived the depression, people who had survived World War II, are now able to live in air-conditioned, you know, middle-class track housing um, and enjoy institutions, enjoy a certain level of safety that they hadn't had in earlier periods and ethnic enclaves in different cities, um, more access to green space, more access to consumer goods, right? All of that's made possible by those massive investments after World War II in infrastructure, in suburban, uh, you know, house construction, as well as, as well as, um, you know, the financing of that entire uh, edifice. Now, the problem with that, right, is we noted it wasn't handed out universally, and a lot of people have focused on this, right, that um, at the same time, you know, out of the 1949 Housing Act, we get an expansion of the FHA lending program. We also get money earmarked for urban renewal, as well as the construction of public housing in the very same legislation, right? So you, you see a spatial segregation of American cities on, on a different scale, right? I mean, they were already segregated before World War II. I don't want to give the impression that they weren't, but it was a different type of ethnic enclave settlement versus a very strict urban-suburban or inner-city-suburban resegregation along class lines, right, and racial lines. And I think that's where the particular mode of policing that we have now comes from, right? It's during that same period that we see all sorts of new experimentation um, in California under the, the leadership of William H. Parker uh, in Los Angeles. You get the use of, of police cruising, right? The use of automobiles to manage and control large urban space. You also have, you know, uh, the ideological strategy of Parker, right? Parker sees police, he's the one who coins the term a thin blue line, right? They're the, they're the guardians, the ones standing between uh, a respectable middle-class virtuous life and all sorts of other enemies or people who might threaten that, that lifestyle, right? And that, that economy, right? So on the one hand, he's worried about uh, godless communism. He's worried about, and that's his terms, he's worried about, um, you know, organized crime and corruption within the department. And he's clear about his concerns over working class black people who are moving into uh, Watson and Los Angeles at that particular moment. People migrating from Texas and Louisiana, Arkansas and Mississippi, right? So I think that's where we should start, right? When we look at the emergence of the Black Panther Party, they're emerging on that particular plane, right? That particular setup on the West Coast. It's like suburban expansion, white access to the affluent society, black ghettoization, right? With some exceptions that we should be, be knowledgeable and clear about. But I think that's where we start in terms of understanding the kind of policing regime that we have now, because it really, it, it sort of begins there, right? With the anxieties around um, urban crime, you know, during the post-war period. 
it also in delinquency and all sorts of other you know you know reefer madness all sorts of other concerns about the city as like this you know uh, place of of all sorts of ills but it, it it really takes off of course after the the urban uh riots and rebellions of the late 1960s right then we begin to see a much more fully formed law and order rhetoric take hold both within cities and places like chicago with mayor daly but also nationally within the context of presidential races right so you've got nixon but also people like george wallace who are talking about the need for law and order so i think that's our that's our creation story in terms of thinking about the problems of contemporary uh policing and mass incarceration right not slavery but a much more recent uh, moment and this is why it's really important i think to sort of think in those terms one thing that we have to realize is that all of us are implicated in this we can talk about it in terms of a racial uh justice approach right we can say that well you know this is unfair that black people are disproportionately um policed as well as incarcerated that's one angle and i'm not i'm not saying there's not some virtues or or importance to that particular angle but i think if we talk about it more in terms of that political economy that's created out of the post-war urban transformation we end up with a different sense that all of us are implicated the lives that we enjoy within cities are tightly bound with the kind of policing of particular populations right it makes it makes a certain kind of life that many of us enjoy as academics as creatives as urban tourists possible right um, and whether that involves the kind of clearing of of homeless people from areas that we try to frequent and enjoy you know <laughs> i'm talking generally because i think we all we all participate in this in some ways or purchasing a condo or a house in an area that has relatively low crime, right? We may not think about the linkage uh, in a really overt way, but we're all implicated. And I think that's a, that's a better way to start, right? To say that, well, we wanna keep cities that have you know, high levels of public safety, but how do we achieve that without necessarily incarcerating large numbers of people, harassing you know, um, you know, hundreds of people on a daily or weekly basis in cities around the country how do we move in that direction how can can we have is i think an important question as well can we have the kind of bon vivant lifestyle that many of us enjoy and at the same time um disentangle it from the carceral apparatus that makes it possible yeah and another question might be can we actually address these kinds of the crime and policing problems that exist or have existed in cities without addressing fundamental political economic inequalities, without ad addressing the inequities of capitalism itself, right? We had August yeah. Nymphs here on the show a few few weeks ago. I think you might've caught that episode, right? Talking about how he doesn't see, right? That without, he's not, he's not someone who necessarily supports abolishing the police. He looks to Cuba and he says, they still have police, but the right. relationship between the police and the community is fundamentally transformed as a result of having at least some elements of socialism. And I'm not trying to just romanticize Cuba either. Right, but this need to kind of keep at least keep class and political economy in view, I really appreciate in your approach. I mean, I want to ask you one more question, and then I think we'll start drawing in Claire here as well, because I know Claire has been involved in, in facilitating and organizing uh, some sessions on the question of labor's relationship to policing, police unions, etc. And so I think it would be a good chance to, to draw you in in a moment, just to put you on notice, Claire. But um, you know, I think most of us probably on this on this Zoom who are on social media or you know, watching media, even mainstream media, let alone left media, probably heard that Monmouth or Monmouth University poll a few weeks ago, right? Saying 
wow, 54% of Americans support what, you know, everything the protesters are doing, including the torching of the third precinct in, in Minneapolis. And by the way, I'm not arguing against the torching of the, of the precinct. My view is if it saves, if it saves a, a black or anyone's life by virtue of deterring police violence, then it was probably a good move. But the question here is about the public perception and also about, I think, the tendency of social media and even the left in general to kind of cling on to um, the optimistic news and not really look too deep into the details. Now, you were pretty much the only person I saw in my reading online who was, and in some of the podcasts you've already done, talking about some of the other notes in that same poll. Right, and I don't know if the, the numbers are at the tip of your tongue. I looked them up just before the show. First off, that 54% divides into 17% saying that they fully supported every, you know, absolutely or strongly supported, and 37 that they said somewhat supported. Mm -hmm. The number that really struck me was that it actually, um, when people asked how often, you know, uh, have you or someone you known been directly harassed by the police? there was a significant number of people that had said, I think it's around a third. And of course it was higher for, for people who identified as black uh, mm -hmm. and other non-white my so-called minorities. And, but, was, but actually a higher number was people answering the question, have you felt that the police have made you feel safe or protected, mm -hmm. right? Similarly, uh, when asked if people um, overall have a generally positive view of their local police, it was like 70% across racial lines with the highest increase over the last five or 10 years among African-Americans. Right. So, I mean, I'm only, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the numbers recently, so I just wanted to, to bounce them back. I mean, what do you make of, I mean, there's really two questions here. One, um, what do you make of like the myth versus reality of like Americans currently, like the public perception of police, what the Americans are really against when it comes to policing and what they're not so sure on and what they actually still support. Obviously, that needs to be disaggregated. I don't mean all Americans are of the same, uh, the same cloth on this. But then the second question, the second question is more to you. Uh, what is your view, Cedric? You know, on what do you think ought to be done with respect to the police? I mean, is it the is it the framework of reform? Is it the framework of defund and and, and divest into other social services? Is it the framework of abolish? or more like what August Nims was talking about, about the need to have socialism so that policing is just fundamentally different in its, in, in its class terms. I mean, two questions there, public impression, like the myth versus reality of public opinion on policing, and then your own kind of view of where really the left should be on this issue uh, mm -hmm. moving forward. Yeah, so I'll say, let me talk about the public opinion side of it first. I mean, we should always remind ourselves that these polls are temperamental and that they are shaped, people's opinions are shaped by events and they're, they're malleable and, you know, two weeks from now, two months from now, we could see totally different uh, numbers. I do think it's significant that the majority of Americans now basically agree with the, the premise of Black Lives Matter, right? One, that Black people are disproportionately targeted um, by police. That is now uh, a popular majority uh, view of Americans. Um, I think also, you know, and that's a victory, right, for Black Lives Matter activists, that now what was, you know, debatable, right, is now widely embraced, right, even among the corporate, you know, uh, sector, right, among the ruling class, right. Um, people have basically said that they believe, they believe the narrative, right. So that's significant. But as you point out, once you go into specifics about the police, there's not a rejection of policing, 
right? There's not a rejection of policing. There's, there's if anything, people not only um, have a favorable attitude about police in their communities, but they want more effective policing and they have no problem with levels of police budgets, which might be a blow to some of the defund uh, organizing in particular places. I think it's also tough at this point to, to, to move back and forth between um, what the public opinion polls are saying and what these fights look like on the ground in particular cities. So I'm, I'm a little bit cautious about making generalizations, but I think it does at least suggest that in some cities, um, the defund demand could run up into some problems, right? I've talked to people here in Chicago who I know who live in really tough neighborhoods and their problem, they're not on board with defund, right? They actually, some of them are actually making the claim, some minority, uh, you know, black and brown uh, activists are saying that they're not the ones who are calling for this, but rather it's people who've now become newly uh, energized through the George Floyd protests who are all over the, the defund demand, whilst people who live within um, neighborhoods on the south and west sides that have a ton of problems that they're trying to wrestle with are not in favor of getting rid of the police or even, you know, descaling. They just want more effective police. They certainly don't want them to abuse them, right? They don't want to get killed by a police officer in exchange, but they want some strategies that help to reduce real crime within the neighborhoods in which they live. And I think we've seen some of this both within Minneapolis, but also in Chicago over the last couple of weeks, there's been spikes in, in uh, homicides and shootings, right? Even if even in, in, in a fatality. And that has many people unnerved. Now, I think to get to your, your, the second part of your question, my sense is what we should be doing, right, as, as activists, as people on the left, as intellectuals, is trying to push for a version of public safety that's achieved through universal or widespread economic security, right? That should be the focus. And maybe, you know, again, I think I'm closer to what August had to say in that previous, um, previous episode, right? I do think that has to be foregrounded. And, you know, mild criticism of the defund, you know, fund, fund black futures tendency, I agree with it. I think it's the right conversation to have. It's, it may be a good place to start, but it actually doesn't go far enough, right? I mean, there's a tremendous amount of upward redistribution of wealth that takes place in cities, um, which also needs to be a part of the conversation, right? So it's not just about taking away from police budgets, but also dealing with the kinds of, you know, TIF financing of all manner of, of economic development, which has very little impact for working class and poor people within uh, cities, um, various, you know, tax breaks, infrastructure improvements that are all about trying to, to help and incentivize and lure corporate investment and don't necessarily filter back to um, the neighborhoods, right? And that's been a problem in cities for a long time. I think as much as possible, that needs to also be a part of this discussion about how do we change the, the problems within cities? How do we ensure more in the way of economic security? Because I think that's where um, the public safety uh, issue lies, right? I think that's really what we're looking at. We can reduce crime. We can reduce the reliance of certain, you know, uh, individuals, groups of people on criminalized forms of work if we're able to deliver, maybe in the form of public works, um, you know, a living wage and other kinds of benefits and, and, a, and a, a life that's meaningful, right? A life that's not only secure, but it's meaningful for uh, hundreds, thousands, if not millions of people in a society who, again, have not been able to enjoy 
the kind of middle-class American dream that many Americans aspire to and, and, and many enjoy, many, many actually have. So I think that's the, uh, that's the challenge for us, right? I would also maybe amplify one part of what you said, you know, in reference to, to August uh, and his, his, his comments before, you know, thinking about Cuba, I don't think it's completely possible to separate out force from politics, right? I mean, Cuba wouldn't still exist as a place if it didn't have police and a military. I know a lot of people don't like to talk about that dimension, but all political communities, and then we would hope those that are just, right, and actually treat people with some dignity and, you know, don't just simply exploit their labor, should, they'll have to be defended at some point from other people who don't want the society as it is, right? So I think, I think we have to think about that as well. Before we go too full, you know, too far down the road of abolition, I don't think you can completely separate out the place of force within politics. I think it, it has to be there in some ways, even if it needs to be brought under democratic control. Um, you know, society, especially just societies, have to be defended against their alternative. Yeah, I mean, thanks for that, Cedric. I mean, so many juicy, like really rich and complex points to engage with, right? Um, you don't just give us quick, you know, quick uh, knee-jerk answers here, you know? I mean, uh, or, you know, it, you make us really think. And I think you drive home the importance of doing concrete investigation, right? I mean, the fact of how locally specific and regionalized this is really drives home the intellectual and political imperative to really get close to the particular communities and localities, which doesn't mean we can't generalize and polemicize and this and that, but that one always needs to kind of return to the local, right? I know here at UMass Boston, where I teach, we've been doing some research and, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years, I think just about the same amount of money that's been pulled out of public higher education has been poured into prison construction and the corrections budget, right? But as you point out, if we only talk about the, the prison and police budget as what we want to divest from, we're really leaving a lot of public as well as privately held wealth off the table if we're really serious about redistribution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to just if we just say divest the whole police budget but don't touch the privately held fortunes, right, of these, of these empires of, of capital, then we're really, you know, we might think we're winning, but we're really going home with just one very small piece of a pie, right, rather than the whole, the whole or half the thing that we need. Right, right. Claire, to bring you in here, I mean, you've been doing some investigation of, of this. I know you work on many fronts, working on essential workers um, issues, but you, you've been hosting, I know I caught one of your discussions you hosted on the very question on labor's relationship to police and police unions and this this question of if police unions should be kind of purged from uh, would be progressive union coalitions uh, or if they or if that doesn't really address the issue and instead there needs to be struggle political ideological cultural struggle with you know, racist and perhaps some problematic pro-policing elements within the unions even among police themselves rather than a than a wholesale uh, dismissal or purge what's your take on this uh, Claire, in terms of your own view and, and what you've been picking up from all the many labor activists and progressive uh, folks that you engage through your, your own work? Yeah, so I, I do a lot of work with, um, with labor unions in Massachusetts and also um, around the country uh, and also work with some of their regional bodies like central labor councils. And I think, you know, since the murder of George Floyd and the new protests, a lot of the conversation has actually brought attention to police unions. And it has become a topic of conversation, the role that they play in, um, in shielding officers from accountability for violent crimes. And particularly pointing to um, 
contractual provisions, right? Things within collective bargaining agreements that either, you know, say that officers will have some long period of time before they're questioned after an incident, providing additional um, uh, resources to protect them in case they've been brought in, also um, putting limits on the amount of time in which somebody can continue to be investigated, et cetera. And, you know, that I think has really brought attention to the labor movement who has for a long time, um, you know, looked at how to address issues of race and racism internally within their own organizations um, and also sort of broader um, issues of race inequality within the economy. And that's really sort of centered this question of police unions and the extent to which the labor movement as a whole um, is going to, you know, count police unions sort of under the broad umbrella of a labor movement. And if you have a labor movement that's um, looking to fight for uh, broad economic and social justice, what does it mean to have officers um, within that movement? And I think it's a really complicated question for the labor movement. And one of the reasons I've been sort of pulling these conversations together was really just um, how fraught I saw it was. And I think, you know, there's really uh, difficult sort of ideological questions um, about, you know, are, you know, are police workers, do police deserve collective bargaining agreements? Are they that far outside of it? And there's certainly some within the labor movement who would say that, you know, they shouldn't have collective bargaining agreements. And I would say, you know, for most of the labor movement, they are workers. And, you know, the question is, should they fall under um, larger umbrella organizations like the AFL-CIO and um, other central labor councils? And most notably, the um, King County Labor Council, which is in Seattle. So they represent about 100,000 workers um, in the Seattle and sort of adjacent counties. Um, passed a resolution removing the police unions um, from their labor council. And, you know, they're one of the largest, a really large labor council. And so this is sort of a, a big move. And I think we'll continue to see these conversations. But, you know, as I said, I think it's really fraught. Um, you know, part of it is actually that police unions are not just like one union that you can just say like, oh, we'll just get rid of this one thing. They're actually you know, a lot of different unions represent law enforcement and not just police, but also ICE agents, prison guards, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I think there's also something particularly, you know, in the conversations I've had that makes it complicated about the fact that, um, you know, police live in communities and are family members with other union members. And what does that mean when you start making that separation and to what extent should it be a conversation that's intended to bring police unions to the table to have these conversations about what it looks like to, um, to sort of create a new system of policing? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, it certainly is a fraught question. And I think, you know, I mean, there's a clear kind of Marxian answer, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that to say it's right, even though I identify as a kind of Marxist, but right to say, of course, police are not workers. They don't, you know, produce a use value or commodity. They're not exploited by capital. And, and if anything, they, their job is to kind of, well, police, discipline, repress workers in one form or another and to protect property, right? But I mean, as, as the conversation with Cedric a moment ago also reflected, right, it's that 
that assumes that framework assumes that, that there, there isn't some kind of notion of meaningful some meaningful good called security or whatever that is provided to communities through at least some forms of policing right as if the, the police apparatus is entirely reducible to its function for capital or racial capitalism or you know uh, the various kind of racial oppression that's wrapped up in in u.s capitalism so i mean it is certainly a fraught question i mean i guess a question for you Claire, would be through your, your work on this and the conversations you've been organizing and listening to, do you get a sense that there is some basis more than rhetoric to say that there are, are potential progressive allies or fractures within police organizations or unions that could play a role in changing the nature of how we understand security? Or is there such a closed ranks mentality among police departments broadly that whatever, you know, progressive potential is really kind of closed out, right? I mean, certainly we've seen, a, I know I, I've, I've heard from people and family members of police who identify as socialists even, right? They're, they're some of, you know, they're uh, in, in their family, they have police officers and they resist the ACAB, you know, right? Tagline that's been going up in many places around the country, right? All, all cops are bastards. Uh, that's obviously a sweeping statement and, and polemic and, and protest language has its own place. I'm not, it's not, doesn't have, doesn't pretend to be a full theory, right? It's a provocation. But I wonder, do you have any thoughts on this? I know it's a fraud issue and I'm not asking you to, to kind of weigh in on something in a recorded session that, you know, you, you haven't thought about, but do you, do you get a sense that, is there, is there anyone even making the argument that there is a progressive potential fracture, a wedge into some of these organizations? Or is it basically just how do we deal with this very bad problem, you know, political struggle with reactionaries or purging? Is it just a matter of the tools we use to deal with an, an utterly kind of reactionary uh, phenomenon? So I, I would say I don't know of any of sort of progressive segments of police that are have been willing to come to the table. And I think, you know, in a lot of cases, and, and I'm thinking particularly about in Seattle, you know, before they were asked to leave the Labor Council or told to leave the Labor Council, um, you know, it did start with a request that they basically sort of like acknowledge their role and sort of accept some culpability. And that was like too far. And I think it, you know, I think at this point, the conversation with police unions is so fraught that it's difficult to think about. I, I don't see anyone coming to the table yeah. to try to address this. I mean, but I, you know, I think one of the conversations that's happening within the labor movement, though, is like, what are other angles, at least for people who think that they should still be part of the conversation, right? Like, what are, um, you know, potential policy approaches that you could think about bringing in police on, right? Like, I think about, um, you know, in particular, a lot of what police end up doing is addressing, um, like, failures of housing policy, right? The fact that there's like a lot of homelessness and people don't have places to live and what does this mean for businesses, et cetera. And so I think one of the thoughts is like, okay, is there a wedge there? Are there issues that can be worked on together that um, you could bring people together with? But I don't know of any right. police organizations that are really, have moved that far yet. Yeah, I haven't been hearing about a lot of cops speaking out either. I mean, it would be kind of a, probably a risky act on their part, but nonetheless a heroic one to have someone actually do more than take a knee and really get involved. I think of the, the soldiers in Vietnam that turned against the war publicly and how important they were to actually bringing down that war. Uh, but that may be a very different analogy, right? We think about the role of policing in this society. 
Claire, I'd like to, you know, on the, on the note of labor, uh, follow up with you now and, and bring in some of the work you've been so instrumental in doing. And again, bringing together other people's voices as well as bringing your own expertise to bear on the question of labor in the time of Trump, which is just an incredibly exciting book. I'm just getting into, I've read a couple sections of it, including your introduction, your co-edited introduction. Again, folks to check out that book, Labor in the Time of Trump. Um, but I wanted to kind of see if we could, if I could, we could dig in there a little bit and, and like to ask you, um, you know, what do you see? I mean, the book, I mean, I think it's, it's really remarkable in the sense it goes well beyond just kind of the, like the viral, uh, you know, uh, toxicity of Trump's tweets and the daily kind of, you know, propaganda, uh, you know, outrages that, that he commits, you know, uh, to really looking at root causes, right? And kind of asking the question, how much of the struggles that workers are facing now, how much of the right-wing movement that working class people and organizations are struggling against is kind of specially linked to Trump and how much of it is kind of long in the making, right? In the, in the product of kind of a, a right-wing, you know, kind of capitalist or neoliberal movement uh, that, has, that has put workers on the defensive. I mean, what do you see right now as the, and what, do you, what are the kind of contributors to the volume that you've helped to edit kind of see as the principal threats that, um, that working people, and I mean the unemployed and the employed here really, are, are facing in the United States? And to what degree is that threat specifically tied to Trump or a kind of rightist Republican agenda versus is it kind of a bipartisan threat uh, that's systemic and really can't be pinned kind of usefully on, on Trump or Trumpism? Yeah, so um, I guess I would say to the question about what do this this question about what are sort of the threats to working people, you know, I would say at a broad level, what we're arguing in the book is that um, that this isn't this isn't really about sort of Trump as a person or even necessarily a particular Republican Party agenda. What we're talking about is sort of a longstanding destruction of public institutions and destruction of the mechanisms of democracy that have allowed working class people to have say and control over their lives. And sort of what this looks like on the ground is privatization, it looks like charter schools, it looks like mass incarceration, it looks like deporting immigrants. Um, and, you know, in the book, we have, um, you know, the first section of the book is really sort of devoted to asking this question of like, okay, what has created this current situation? Um, and we have three chapters there that really look at this and kind of take slightly different angles at it. Um, we have a chapter by Nancy McLean, who's, um, it's called the Koch Brothers Long Game and the Implications for Progressive Organizing. And she takes this sort of long view on the emergence of a libertarian ideology and the development of the far right. And she argues that there's really like a sort of deep, broad, um, connected network of right-wing think tanks and foundations that have promulgated a an ideological agenda, and that's what we're what we're looking at. Um, and you know, we are the second chapter um, is by Gordon Lafer, and it really sort of stands a little bit in contrast to this. He takes an approach that sort of argues that actually um, the problem is a corporate assault. It's not really driven by ideology, but really by business self interests. Um, and, you know, he's sort of saying like a lot of these actions and policies that we're talking about in terms of privatization, mass incarceration, et cetera, are not, you know, some committed set of ideologues who are promoting a specific agenda, but rather just like mainstream business people like 
the Chamber of Commerce, um, and and he also points to um, ALEC, the American Legis uh, Legislative Exchange Council. Um, and you know, the third thing I would just put in there is that we our third chapter is by Bill Fletcher and Jose Lalouz, um, and they really bring in um, racism and xenophobia and sort of arguing that this is what is fueling this um, right-wing populism and it's sort of creating a, a framing um, of, an of an economic crisis um, for working class Americans. So in other words, there's, there's different theories, right? And your book brings together about how to understand the nature of the threats, uh, how to understand the nature of the enemy or the enemies that are being faced. Yeah, I mean, I know you in the role of editor, which I've played before, you know, it, it's, it's, you're tempting to stay just at the level of synthesizing and presenting. I mean, how, what's your, do you, do you have a particular view of like, what is the principal nature of the threat we face? Or maybe to put this in a more practical sense, how important do you, and Cedric, I'll welcome you back in on, on this after Claire, how important do you see is the, is the election um, in, in terms of from the standpoint of organized labor and not only unions per se, but other forms of working class, uh, organizing working class interests, as we know in this country, what only about 7% of all workers are in unions per se, uh, more in the public sector as, you know, I think we're all union members, right, uh, here on this, the, the two guests and myself here in the MTA um, here in Massachusetts. Um, how important does the uh, election play into your calculation uh, Claire, speaking for yourself, or from if there are other perspectives from the book that shed light on the importance of that election, and and I'd like to to get your view on that too, Cedric. And not only like is it important? Of course, it's important in some way, but how? And what do you think a proper left or labor relationship to the election should be? Um, you know, there's a lot of different views out there. Not only you know some people saying that Biden is so compromised he's not even worth supporting. Other people feel like you know hold your nose and vote, but focus on the day after. Some people think it's ultimately an incredibly important election, even if Biden's has incredibly problematic in the Democratic Party as well, at least post Bernie. Um, what's your view of that, Claire? Uh, and what is your volume, uh, the volume you've edited kind of shed light on that, uh, on that kind of cutting question? Um, so I guess my view is that the election is incredibly important. And I think um, while Trump, I don't, you know, isn't unique in a lot of his particular agenda, I think that he does seem, um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, committed to just destroying everything, things, you know, they sort of, all of the things that we build and use. And in that way, it is a particular unique thing. And I think on the question of Biden, you know, he's not a transformative or transformational candidate. And he's never suggested to be one, but I think, you know, what he is, is a party leader. And he, you know, in a lot of ways, brings the consensus of the party. And I think in that way, you can think of him as somebody who can be, who can be moved. And I think the Bernie Sanders campaign has moved him on a lot of issues. And while he doesn't have sweeping proposals like Medicare for all, or, you know, a Green New Deal, I think there's a lot of pieces of his policy platform that are certainly, if implemented, would be critically important to working class people, right? He has proposals around increasing the minimum wage. Um, he's proposed changes to housing law that would, you know, take Section 8 from being um, a 
a voucher program to an entitlement. Um, he's supported, you know, higher ed. And notably, he's also supported the PRO Act, which is um, a piece of legislation that sort of um, creates a whole new set of rights for labor unions, particularly by overriding states' right to work laws um, and sort of allowing organizing through a streamlined um, card check process. And so I think he's really problematic. I think, you know, at the same time, we should, you know, there is a space there to see him as, as a, as a vessel and a mechanism to try to advance some of um, an important pieces of labor's agenda. Yeah, certainly he can't be seen to have the co-optive power as a particular individual that certain other charismatic uh, <laughs> for those who have come before, right? He doesn't have the Obama uh, charm, uh, or you know, and I don't see anyone being co-opted from from uh, more militant politics as a result of Biden's particular presentation, to put it a as euphemistically as I can. Cedric, what's your take on, on the election? I know you've written about this too. It's not, you know, uh, you know in, in different contexts. Uh, what's your take on the election and, and what a left approach to the election kind of, uh, or method for even orienting to the election should look like? Yeah, so I, I agree with much of what Claire said. And I was actually gonna say something similar to what you just said as far as the, uh, you know, Biden is not Obama. He's not even Clinton, right? He's He's operating within a different context where I think people are, are wiser. We've, we've learned a lot from the struggles of the last you know, decade or so. And um, I mean, I think, I think the election matters in a huge way, right? I think, and I think we can't lose sight of that. Um, for many people right now who unfortunately are gonna lose loved ones over the next couple months because of how terrible this pandemic has been handled by the White House, but also by the, the uh, Republican-controlled Senate, um, people will continue to suffer, right? And I think, you know, it's, it's one thing for me to talk about, um, you know, really broad policies that we all want to see take shape, but there's a way that the Trump administration has really, um, you know, it's met death and misery for many people, whether it's the, the folks who are anxious about being separated from their families um, once he came to power, uh, there's also, you know, as I said before, in the, in the midst of this pandemic, there's all sorts of anxiety and concern. There's real unemployment. All of these things could be resolved through uh, an effective approach by the president as well as Congress, but it has not been. And so I think the election matters, right? Um, and I think it's going to matter in, in, in big ways. Um, I think not just the, the presidential part of the election, but also the Congress, right? Like reorganizing Congress in such a way that might allow us to win um, different victories. I think, you know, one of the most disheartening things about the last election is, you know, listening to so many people on the left who were hardcore never Hillary, uh, you know, folks. And I was never a supporter, even of Bill Clinton during the 1990s. I thought he was terrible. I voted for him but I thought he was terrible as a, as a guy and he wrought so much destruction for working class and poor people, whether it was NAFTA, uh, Hope Six legislation, which demolished thousands of public, public housing units across the country, um, the transformation of the welfare state towards workfare. He did all sorts of things that were terrible. Um, and I, but I'm not sure, I'm not willing to accept the idea that somehow electing Biden means a repeat of those, those same years that we saw in the 1990s or even a repeat of the Obama administration. I think this is a different moment. People are energized. There are many younger people who are becoming politicized by way of Black Lives Matter and, um, and even the pandemic itself. 
And so I think we stand to be in a different position. The way the left or, you know, those of us on the left should think about elections, they're simply signposts, right? They're basically ways to try to shape what the rules of the game will be and what sort of playing pieces we'll have on the table. They're not the game itself, right? They're sort of like a pre-match. And I think we have to constantly think about it in that way, that it's a way for us to set up the situation as best we can and then be prepared to fight for it, right? To set the rules, to agree to the terms um, as best we can. But we shouldn't mistake it for being a real battle, right? I mean, that happens once we get past, as you said, after day one, once we get into the actual administrations. And we have to be prepared to challenge our colleagues who may be more excited about the appointment of this or that, you know, uh, first person to some uh, political post and not the real legislative concerns that we should all be fighting for. So I think that's, that's, the, that's the approach I would give to most people who are gonna be taking part in the election, but also thinking uh, beyond that, that this is just one step in the process, right? It's not, it's not the game itself. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to put it, right? And, and I mean, clearly, for those of us who identify uh, or orient in a socialist way and believe there needs to be much more sweeping change, most of that change is not on the ballot. And some of it arguably never will be, right? I mean, that's a longer debate, about, I guess, about the, the degree to which social, real socialism and not just mild social democracy can be achieved through electoral strategies. But just because, because uh, the menu that's you know, like being offered does, you know, uh, around elec elections doesn't include everything we want, doesn't mean that there aren't still meaningful choices there, right? Uh, that don't matter and don't perhaps change the terrain on which that broader, more, transformative struggle will will uh, take place right so uh, i don't know it seems to me sometimes some on the left maybe i just spend too much time on social media uh, but uh in fact i probably definitely do uh, although this show also came out of social media to some degree so i guess everything is contradictory but it seems like there is a lot of people who have trouble making that kind of pragmatic distinction between right what the change we really want and what is offered in a particular institutional moment I don't know, do you, Claire or, or Cedric, have a thought on that? Um, I also want to point out to those who are listening live on Zoom, one of the great things about the show is you get to directly engage uh, the speakers yourself. Uh, we're, we're almost at an hour at this point, and after an hour, we're going to bring in some voices. I see a few questions. If you want to write a question in the chat box, we will uh, we'll try to get to you and call on you once we get past that hour mark. Uh, Cedric or Claire, do you want to speak to this question about you know, the left, I don't know, if, I'm not trying to lump the whole left in here, but certain currents in the left that seem to have trouble with the distinction uh, between kind of, or, or seem to see, see politics in a way that, that is hard to reconcile with uh, the limited options of actually existing elections. I mean, I, I can see both a strength and a weakness in that, right? Uh, but it certainly can be, uh, uh, you know, a troublesome, a fraught terrain certainly on social media. And maybe this is a way to bring Black Lives Matter discourse back in to Cedric. I, there were some other questions I wanted to get to here. Uh, in terms of, I don't know if you want to, not to just focus on Black Lives Matter, but uh, to what degree is a politics of kind of, I don't want to put this on Black Lives Matter at all, but, but I'll just leave it there. Uh, Cedric and Claire, would you like to speak to that question of the left's relationship to elections and uh, social media or different ways of thinking about politics that are, that are kind of current on the left? Want me to go? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think um, let's let's talk about the the Sanders campaign as an example, right? I mean, I think I think socialist politics looks more 
achievable from certain parts of this country, right? There's places where you can live and work and be where it does seem like it's within reach, right? That the kinds of, of uh, things that many of us want to see, um, you know, come to fruition, they, they seem more viable, right? If you live in South Carolina, if you live in Louisiana, where I am right now, uh, it doesn't look the same, man. I mean, it, you know, there's some of these states, they don't have unions, right? They're right to work states. There's states where they've been fighting and losing, you know, for a long time now, right? They live in Republican states. They're surrounded by Republican congressional districts. Um, many parts of the South have Republican governors. They're solidly so. And, you know, for people in those contexts, elections matter, right? You know, showing up and, and getting somebody that you really want and who's going to, you know, who might give you a chance to, to see some, some decent legislation passed, it matters in ways it doesn't if you live in New York, not to pick up on New Yorkers or people who live in Chicago, you know, uh, where I am. Um, but it's just a different, a different landscape, right? And I think, you know, I grew up in Louisiana, you know, uh, and you know, uh, became politicized in the late 80s and 90s as a, as a teenager and a 20-something. And some of the fights we were engaged in were, were real basic fights, like let's not have a Klansman and a neo-Nazi as a congressman from our state, right? Let's not have the governor be, uh, you know, the former Grand Wizard. That's, this is a simple battle. And if you're in that context, right, you have to, you have to dial down the kind of talk about, you know, grand historical change, which just isn't going to happen, right? In that in that context, it's not even it's not even palpable. So I think for people who live in coastal and more cosmopolitan places, um, it's easier to talk about socialist politics. It's easier to blow off an election as not significant. But I think for those people who are in the interior and in the hinterlands, and in busted parts of this country where you know they're fighting just for basic things elections matter in a totally different way and and not even just the the election of of congress persons or state legislators but all these down ballot things that people ignore right like referendum and ballot initiatives and things that are going to change the quality of life for people judges right i mean that's a huge thing um you know for the black communities i grew up around here in louisiana was electing better judges because if you do have to go before the court you want to have at least a chance to be treated fairly. And so I think there's a number of things about elections, again, depending on where you are, where you're, where you're sitting in this country at this particular moment, you know, it's, it's, it's much more of a life or death fight than, you know, thinking about uh, single payer uh, health care or even, you know, socialism in an even higher level of abstraction. Yeah, no, I mean, it's again, it's complicated, right? I mean, I know you're someone who's identified as a socialist. I was hearing you talk about Marx and the importance of Marx and on the Paris Commune on another podcast. But how to, and I'm, I'm someone personally as an educator and as a, and a writer, I don't want to dampen enthusiasm for radical change, right? <laughs> By doing the like, oh, if you, if you have more utopian aspirations, you're hurting the most vulnerable, so shame on you. But again, like, how do we fuse a kind of transformative, revolutionary outlook, anti-capitalist outlook, with, a pra with an honest, grounded pragmatism, right? To me, I mean, they're clearly in tension, uh, and I don't have a magic answer to that, but I, that's the way I understand the problem or the, the challenge. Uh, Claire, what do you think about this? I mean, obviously, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, when, I, when I hear this question, it also um, 
you know, I think a lot about the sort of union context in which I often work, in which this question, a similar question often arises at the moment in which uh, collective bargaining agreements are being negotiated. And there's always some, you know, do we hold off? Do we ask for the bigger thing? Do we go for the bigger transformation? Or do we, you know, try to take what's here now? And, you know, I think we need to sort of break that frame of talking about it as either or, right? Because it's, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think, you know, at this particular moment, the question of how do we win things for people right now, um, particularly as this pandemic continues to like spread rapidly across huge parts of the country, we have huge unemployment. I mean, when that $600 a week extra in the unemployment stops at the end of July, there's going to be like, like a lot of families are just going to literally fall off an economic cliff. And, you know, I think we, you know, we need to hold both of those things together because we also need to win things right now for people who are struggling in this moment. Yeah, Claire, I'm so glad you mentioned the, the really, I mean, you brought us back to the COVID context, which I think, you know, we can never get away with, even though we've been going deep in some areas, I think it is worthwhile coming back to that and specifically flagging the issue of unemployment, right? 40 million plus unemployed and the, the meager unemployment assistance that was extended by Congress just like, uh, I mean, has disappeared. And, and, and I don't know if there's even a second bill on the horizon that's likely to make it out. Uh, as someone who works, I guess all of us are in unions, so this is a very personal question, actually. We had 350 non-tenure track faculty given effectively pink slips a few months ago and, and with no word if they may be hired back. And I know that's true at many other schools. Speaking um, in terms of the labor movement, unions and beyond, Claire, um, what do you think unions can and should do? Um, and other, you know, and basically what should be done on any level, even outside of unions, in terms of defending and organizing the unemployed, you know, um, and what is the role, not to say it's all on unions and not to say it's all about workplaces, it could be about advocacy with respect to the state, as well as the construction of new kinds of institutions. Um, you know, Cedric, I'd like to include you, you in that too. I mean, I know you've written about one way to understand policing violence in this moment is aimed at the surplus population, right? at the kind of structurally unemployed, the reserve army of labor that has no capital, has no prospect of a, of a need for is in terms of exploitation. So, I mean, what about this question of unemployment? I mean, it looms large and I don't think I've heard enough, I don't hear enough talk about what the left can and, and should be doing on this. There's obviously a history of, of organizing un, unemployed. Claire, uh, from your vantage point, what do you see going on already and what do you think could be or should be done? And, and, and Cedric, if you wanna comment on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredibly important piece. And as you pointed out, it, you know, history has shown us that um, that when we have labor unrest that includes um, employed and unemployed people, as we did sort of before the New Deal, that that was really important to pushing through some of those critical pieces of pro-worker legislation. And I think, you know, the labor movement is thinking about that in, in some ways, but it is, you know, part of a moving towards a broader frame of how do we organize in our communities and how do we start to bargain for sort of this bigger common good um, outside of, um, you know, just our workplaces. And some unions are, you know, have moved more down that path than others. Um, certainly, I think a lot of the teachers unions in Massachusetts and also nationally who have engaged in some of um, the largest sort of labor actions in the last five years um, have been at the forefront of that. But I think, you know, for unions adopting that bigger frame 
um, of being engaged in the community and you know pushing for these other pieces of legislation because as we know oftentimes you know these unemployed people are also you know, you know married to union members or you know they're not outside of the labor movement they're also you know part of it and they could be union members and it it needs to be thought of in that way yeah thanks for that claire uh cedric do you want to speak to that so i mean on the question of the uh the unemployed i mean i think we have to bring back and maybe um update and expand the idea of public works um you know a lot of times that that term gets confused i was in a conversation with people uh maybe about six or seven years ago and when i talked about public works they automatically thought about the state giving money to private contractors like the building trades right and when when i asked them to, to think back to you know the works progress administration of the new deal or even the civilian conservation corps as ways that you can put people to work but to do things that don't necessarily uh involve um you know, um, profit making, right? I mean, people, you can organize work around um, use values, right? Which would be a different kind of way of thinking about work in a society, right? So if you think back to the Works Progress Administration, having out of work uh, writers engage in a literacy program or having out of work artists uh, do public murals around the country during the 1930s, that's pretty amazing, right? To, to do something like that, to pay them for their, their labor, but to, to create value for the society, right, in a way that doesn't involve um, exploitation. So I think, I think we have to, to rethink those ideas and reintroduce those, maybe starting where we can win, you know, in cities that have um, progressive enough forces, unions and other groups in place to push for those things, maybe also advancing that within the context of defund, um, demands in, in different cities. But I think there's a way to do it, right? You could, you could actually um, employ people, right? But doing things that would be of value to all of us. Another thing that we should reconsider is, you know, decommodification of various goods and services, basic needs that we all, we all uh, you know, are constantly pursuing, right? But what would matter more for people who don't have the, the, the means, right? I mean, making transportation uh, free for people, right, in cities. Um, thinking about ways to make housing, uh, take housing as much as possible out of the private market in cities, or at least make viable options available to people. Those are the kinds of things that us on the left should be thinking about. And again, they may not be um, of the, the socialist uh, transition that we, we want, right, but there will be, what, fights that we could win in this moment that could matter in terms of building people's expectations about what's possible. And so I think, you know, kind of echoing what, what Claire said, we have to engage in some fights that we can win, you know, and, and I think doing that will help us to build, you know, popular power that can lead to other kinds of things in the future. Yeah, that's really inspiring. I mean, that idea of the writers, unemployed writers being put to work either in literacy, in literacy work or artistic murals, I mean, it reminds me of the 30s, right? I mean, in, you know, in the Communist Party, one of the things they did is set up these, you know, these writer, artist, worker clubs, these John Reed clubs, right? And, 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 and then organized unemployed councils and ultimately pushed for things like that in, in the New Deal. And a lot of the great, you know, radical even black writers I study, like Richard Wright, right, were kept 
alive by some of those very programs, even if their politics certainly overshot, right, what FDR was offering. Um, we have a bunch of great questions that have come in in the chat box, and I, I want to make sure we have time for them. So we're going we're gonna to go through the queue here. Uh, I think the first question, maybe we can take a couple so that it doesn't just get, you know, we can hear as many voices as possible and then give, you know, give Claire and, uh, and Cedric a moment, a breather, and then let them take a little notes and then respond to what they like to. I saw Greg Meyerson is on the, is on the call. Greg, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great, Greg. Um, it's great to have you on the call, comrade. Um, you and one other uh, person on the on the Zoom has both raised the question of uh, class reductionism. I'll let you you voice it yourself, and then we'll we'll, we'll take after that. We'll take Bobby Lee, uh, and we'll take uh, Heika. And I have one comment from uh, Facebook. I want to read for so someone who's not on the call with us. For, uh, that's from uh, uh, Algier Hawkins on uh, of Socialist Alternative. Okay, Greg, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'll ask my question on class reductionism. Then I have another really quick one, uh, which is related, uh, which I'd like an answer to. Uh, Mary Page Lieberman, by the way, said something pretty funny in response to my question. She might want to chime in. Um, all right, so my qu I'm just reading here. Um, can Cedric and Claire talk about the term class reductionism as an insult and an ideological term? And then does it have any real meaning? Is there such a thing as a class reductionist? And, and I was like thinking about Daniel DeLeon or something like that. Okay, great. As, oh, yeah. sorry. Okay, my, my second question, and, and I put this on the chat earlier, is um, I'd like uh, the speakers to comment on the, you know, I've never heard the terms. I, I, we're hearing the term systemic racism dozens of times a day in the mass media. Um, that's an, a new thing. Um, and uh, when I went to check my when I, when I went to check uh, my my school email at uh, North Carolina A and T, uh, I found that we were having a uh, we were having a session on systemic racism uh, for the faculty led by the army. <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, this obviously doesn't fit well in a Marxist framework. Uh, and I'm and I'm wondering how how you you two would conceptualize the way the term systemic racism has um, functioned in the present moment. Okay, so and that's plenty, but I want to take a couple. But so flagging it, it's uh, class reductionism and systemic racism, and and how these terms play out. Uh, Bobby Lee, you had a question about uh, police use of force, and then Heike after that also on a similar theme. Yeah, um, no, as a sociologist, one, I'm glad everybody understands what we do, systemic racism. They're like, oh my God, this word. I'm like, yeah, we know, we've been telling you. Um, but the other part of that was, um, you know, it was, I had one for Claire was a little bit was like, what does, what role does labor have? Because I'm in an educator's union. Like, what role do we have to pass resolutions at the state level or even at our local levels to, um, raise the minimum qualifications for police, right? For a lot of states, especially California, it's a GED in six months or 18 months of training, right? But research tends to show that use of force, complaints, and all of that is reduced if they have higher degrees. So I'm just curious about that. And then the other part is the culture of policing tends to be very heavily um, hyper-masculine and toxic masculinity and violence and using force to demand that you're respected and demand that people defer to you. Um, and so they escalate very quickly. And I know people who have been in the academy who have had problematic 
cadets with them, right? That they're people they're going through this with are very problematic and everyone knows they're problematic, but nobody says anything because it's the exact type of mentality that they want, right? That they're, they're going to follow the orders, but they're also going to be violent if they feel provoked. Um, so how do we change the culture of policing? And obviously that's a very white male view of masculinity, right? And all of those things that we could get into, but how do we change the culture of policing from that if that's so deeply entrenched in who they are, right? Like, how do you change that? Because we know one education reduces some of these problems, but so does, so do female cops. Having female officers reduces a lot of the violence and other things because, right, socialization and all of that of feminine and masculine traits. So I'm just curious about those things. Great, and we'll take one more. Uh, Heike has had a question, I, I believe was written in the, in the chat box, also on a related theme. Heike, our uh, great colleague comrade from UMass Boston. <laughs> Um, this question outs me as a political theorist. It's for Professor Johnson. Um, I'll just read what I wrote. Um, I'm still thinking about your claim that I found uh, really significant and important when you said that force is ineliminable from politics because, as you said, just societies have to be defended from those who oppose them. So I just have a couple of questions. I just wanted to think with you more about that and talk more with you about that. So um, when you defended from, from whom? From those from forces without or forces within? And if from within, what's the character of the of that internal violence, and and how or why is it ineliminable from from our shared social life? I I just think the question of cops and labor unions and anarchism or socialism it comes down to the it comes down to this issue of violence and is violence something as um, part of the human condition or is eliminable from the human condition? And if it's ineliminable from the human condition, then where does it come from? What is it? So, sorry, political theory. <laughs> no apology needed. So we have a couple questions on force and policing and then the class reductionism and systemic racism question. Uh, who would like to go first? I know you could both speak to aspects of each, I'm sure. All right, Cedric and then Claire, just as we, we started. Right, so I think I'll, I'll pick up on um, uh, class reductionism begrudgingly I'll take up class reductionism and then uh, say a little bit about police use of force um, but maybe in a slightly different way maybe picking up on uh, earlier thread about um, unions and excessive force right because that that seems to be the dominant way that many activists are are talking about it in the moment um, and then the last part about force and politics, the political theory uh, question from uh, Heike. Uh, so in terms of class reductionism, I mean, it's purely an epithet. I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, I'm, I'm accustomed to that notion coming from uh, liberals, you know, particularly when I was a grad student in the 1990s, you're sort of on the very ends of the, the so-called end of history, right? It was common to have people dismiss Marxist interpretations as class reductionist, uh, totalizing, uh, authoritarian, a whole list of, of um, you know, words that could end the conversation, right? They would use it in, the, in those ways. It's odd in this moment to have people who are self-styled Marxists and socialists level it whenever you talk about um, black populations. I think this is the issue. Whenever you talk about the black population in this country and the class dimensions of it, that's typically when I get charged as being a class reductionist, which makes absolutely no sense to me. 
Um, I think that if we, if we say that we're Marxists, we should be thinking through questions of class as they manifest throughout the society, not just um, you know, in the broader you know, uh, population, but also among minorities, especially if there's, also, there's a longer history of black intellectuals who've talked about that, right? So I think that this is not a departure for, for me or anyone else to talk about class as it relates to, to black people. There's a rich and ongoing conversation about that, you know, intellectually. So I think people who level that charge just simply don't want to deal with it. I think there are also people who are committed to a particular idea about blacks as a vanguard, which at one point, what I think at one point made sense, you know, during that post-war remaking of American society where you had growing conservatism among certain segments, you know, who are now becoming middle class, and then this surging um, black radical politics among, you know, Southerners who are trying to desegregate, but also blacks in, in, in the North and in other uh, urban areas. So I think in that context, right, looking for blacks as like this, um, prefigurative or proto-revolutionary force makes some sense. But to do it now, right, and to try to bat down any criticism as class reductionism just seems like nonsense to me. And I don't, you know, I just don't think we should waste, I've already wasted way too much time on, on the idea of class reductionism. Um, the other point I was going to add, right, in response to like toxic masculinity and, and, um, and policing, I'd be interested in seeing the numbers about more women police officers and reductions in, in, um, in violence. There's also the figure that in places where you actually have police unions, right, there tends to be less in the way of, uh, where police have collective bargaining rights, less in the way of police violence against civilians, right? And I think, I mean, if people are willing to, to see that, I can share it with you afterwards. I see folks shaking their heads, but the, the data is there. There's multiple sources. So if you have others, we can, we can talk about it. But I think um, there's at least five Southern states where collective bargaining is not allowed for police officers. Those actually have higher rates of police deaths, uh, arrest-related deaths, than do places like Michigan and New York where we do see unionized officers. So I think, again, my question is, our concern, if we're intellectuals, if we really wanna try to advance some critical understanding of this moment we're in, we can't accept the pablum that's circulated among activists about how the world is working, right? Or even among our, our peers. But we need to sort of bring, you know, some sort of empirical understanding to the table. Now, what could be happening is that um, places where you have more women on the force, places that have collective bargaining rights, could also be places that have larger numbers of minority officers and different kinds of, of leadership in place, right? You know, in terms of what they're doing. So there could be other factors that are more important than the raw numbers that I'm, that I'm alluding to here, but it's something that we should, we should think about. Um, so the last question about, uh, you know, from Heike about uh, force and, and, and power, where do I see these, these uh, you know, this opposition coming from? You know, we can look historically, right, at all of those different really glorious and inspirational um, socialist regimes that took place in different parts of the global south, right? They had opposition which came from those persons who didn't want to see their resources, right, capitalists in other parts of the world, didn't want to see their resources nationalized, right? And that's why, you know, in a place like, like Chile or in um, the Congo, you know, under the, the, um, 
leadership of Patrice Lumumba, right? We saw clear efforts to overturn those socialist regimes, the same in terms of, of um, you, know, you know, regimes in the Caribbean and other parts of Latin America and Africa, right? I mean, there's a, there was force from without combined with, you know, various uh, traitors and provocateurs within who, who orchestrated coup d'etat and other um, seizures of power that ended those experiments in, in socialism and various forms of social democracy. So why wouldn't we expect to see the same thing if we're able to achieve uh, some sort of gains here in the United States, right? If it means, you know, even, if, even with the Affordable Care Act, right? I mean, you know, and, and efforts to move towards single-payer healthcare, there's already forces that are saying they don't want that, right? They don't want to see an end to private insurance. And they're going to work, even if it's not by violent means, to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I think when we talk about uh, force, force is just simply the most uh, extreme manifestation of, of power and trying to impose one's will. Uh, I don't see it going away as far as the human species is concerned. I mean, I think we can reduce the levels of, of violence. We can reduce that as like the means that people uh, try to advance their, their concerns. But I can't think, if you can think of a society where they were able to totally get rid of, of violence, I mean, I think we should be able to punch people every now and then. <laughs> that, that I, I think force is necessary. It's a bad joke. Force can be necessary for, for good, right? Let me give you one example before we, we, uh, we move on. Um, I don't think I would be a professor, right? I don't think I would have graduated from the University of Maryland or Ohio State, for sure, had it not been for interventions in this country to, to desegregate schools and to change the, the, the uh, you know, and overturn the Jim Crow regime in the South. That wasn't just achieved through marches. It was also achieved through the deployment of National Guard forces, as well as federal marshals. Um, and whether that was bringing Blacks to the ballot box, or even, you know, desegregating schools and universities, and allowing people to use public accommodations, right? That was only made possible by forcing whites. The same thing is true for the Reconstruction period. The moment that we removed federal troops from the South, whatever gains that had been achieved by Blacks out of the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, were quickly taken away. And so I do think we can use violence, we can use coercion for good in certain historical moments. And I just think it's naive to think that that's not the case. I wouldn't be sitting here, um, I probably still would be sitting here in Louisiana, but I wouldn't be sitting here as a faculty member and somebody who's had a chance to do some of the things I've done had it not been for a forceful intervention on behalf of the federal government to, to desegregate the South. Thanks for that, Cedric. Claire? Um, okay, I'm going to pick up on maybe a couple of the other questions and particularly the ones that are relating to labor unions. And, um, and you know, in thinking about this question about should labor unions be passing resolutions to support raising standards or qualifications for police officers, um, you know, I would make a distinction here sort of between the labor movement broadly and then thinking about the union movement more specifically. And I would say that the union movement sort of as a subset of the, you know, the largest subset, but it is just like a piece of a broader movement that includes other types of organizations as well that are advocating for workers' rights and often outside of unions. And I bring this up just because um, once you start looking particularly at unions themselves, they, um, you know, 
the rules around what they can and can't do and also their individual cultures, I think really come into play. So this question about should they be passing resolutions to support um, standards, you know, I think there's been a long tradition in the labor movement of allowing individual unions to do their own thing. And that's, um, you know, so it would be like very atypical, which is not to say it can't be done, but the idea that one union would tell another union how to do their work is like sort of outside the existing framework of how unions function and interact with one another. And I think, you know, you can talk about whether it's, that's, that's, that should be true, but I think that that's really sort of outside of the scope of what would happen. And I, you know, I just think on that same thread, thinking about this question of, um, of sort of toxic masculinity and whether the introduction of more women into the police force would make a difference. Um, you know, this also made me think of some of the, the ways in which the peculiarities of unions and the way in which they operate, I think, come into play, right? Because we can think about, you know, all right, if there are particular, um, you know, police, let's say that there's particular police officers or that are a problem, or if we want to say change the, um, the number of women in the police force, right? Like what you'd have to do is actually get rid of some police officers and then bring in new ones. And that sort of like fundamentally undermines like a lot of the, um, the sort of like bargaining structures and contractual agreements that are so core to all unions. And I think in a lot of ways, most unions would start to feel very uncomfortable with how that ran up against um, ran up against their own provisions and thinking about like, okay, well, what, what does this mean for other public sector unions, right? Like, are we going to come say to teachers next? Like, hey, we think you, you know, have too many women in your profession and we want to change the makeup there and we're going to lay some people off and bring new people in. And, you know, I think that's... Um, you know, unions often end up being very constrained by that. And I think that there's a lot of space to think about the ways in which um, other organizations outside of the union movement um, can play can play a role in addressing some of these issues. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, very thoughtful questions and we have a few more. First, I wanna just to give a shout out to those who are watching on Facebook who, who aren't here to read their own question. We have just more of a statement, but certainly raises questions uh, from L. Elgier uh, Hawkins, who, who writes to us, in my opinion, how we build our social movements, no matter who is in the White House is key. Biden will not have a honeymoon period with racial oppression, COVID-19, and the great economic crisis to deal with. We need to have some imagination about a political project of building fighting organizations rooted in the daily struggle of working people, poor, and most oppressed. The, build, the building of a political party of the working class is going to be paramount. Um, no disagreement here. We'll just let that sit and it may inform responses to, to questions coming up here. Feel free to respond to that if you like. We have Mark Soderstrom, um, uh, MLG comrade uh, on the line. After that, we will take, uh, we'll have MJ. Uh, and then I think we might have one other person I'm forgetting, I'll, I'll double check. Uh, go ahead, Mark. Well, I was curious in terms of your opinion, in terms of organized labor, we were talking about sort of progressive organized labor turning to community or organizing or towards the unemployed. And I'd like to know if Janice has been 
and has had an effect in the change in changing the strategy of the union movement in terms of more community-based organizing, looking at the unemployed, uh, a social justice union formation. Is that a response to the Janus decision that's possibly uh, on in the future? And Janus terrifies the crap out of me. I'm just praying for a silver lining that it could actually motivate uh, progressive change in union strategy in the future. Thank you. Great, and we'll, we'll take a few here. We'll go to MJ, and then actually we will also go to Joel Wohler, a labor, labor historian as well, yeah. MJ, are you unmuted? Yes, I am now, can you hear me? Yes, thank okay. you. Okay, very good. So um, I, th I think a few people here are, live in Massachusetts. Yeah, Joe, I recognize you. And I live in Massachusetts. I live, I live a few miles northwest of Boston. And uh, we have a new organization in my area founded like uh, last week. And they organized a, uh, they wrote a letter to our new police chief. And um, I, was, I, was actually, I was actually angry when I read the demands. And this is something I've been dealing with for quite a few years. I mean, with the Black Lives Matter, we're talking about like the official network and everything as well. Um, it's what one of the demands was that um, our police chief, he acknowledges, you know, the slave, slave catching past of the police. And, and it, it made me angry because I'm saying like, well, that, that doesn't cost him anything. He could just say, yeah, well, what they did 150 years ago, that's really horrible. We're the new enlightened cops. And um, I'm seeing, there's a, I'm seeing a lot of this kind of symbolic stuff, the kind of wanting acknowledgement, atonement, and, and validation. If you go back to like the, uh, the beginning of the whole Black Lives Matter stuff, and Alicia Garza, one of the founders, I mean, she's like the main founder, she was saying it's a, like a, a love letter to black people, we, we matter. Um, and and I'm, I see so much of this. And um, while I've had a lot of anger and pain about racism and stuff like this, I'm, I'm obviously still white. And I, what I'm, I guess one of my concerns is that I see a lot of focus on white people. Uh, like, actually, if you want to go back a few years ago, um, if I can, um, there were a few people who met with Hillary Clinton. And uh, this was a few years ago, and one of them was a guy from Massachusetts, and he wanted Hillary Clinton to also acknowledge the racism of like the 1990s and stuff like this. I don't know if you all remember this, but Black, Black Agenda Report wrote um, a critique of that. It was the same kind of critique I had that even like Hillary is trying to orient them. Like what it, concretely do you want me to do? But people are so kind of stuck on, do you acknowledge that you were a sinner? And I think that this is something that, you know, a lot of activist communities are kind of dealing with is that I don't know that we're accustomed to kind of trying to think about concretely, what is strategy? What's it gonna look like to take power away from the police? What's it going to look like to empower our own neighborhoods? Um, and I mean, it's kind of like, I, I mean, if you take a look at like some stuff, it seems to me like a lot of people are kind of uh, psychologically broken and they're wanting to be healed. Like, I don't know if, if you guys know who Umar Johnson is when he was on the breakfast, uh, the breakfast show, or whatever it's called a few years ago, he said, before we can have external reparations, we need to have internal reparations. So he's talking about, psychological healing before we could see like the concrete stuff and I guess I'm just trying to kind of expressing like my frustration that we're not focused on this but there's really nothing like I think we can do when our culture is so it's like we're using activism as a form of therapy you understand what I'm saying 
Thanks for that, MJ. I know I said a lot. I know. I said no, a lot. no, you did, but I think it's. I think it's worth. I think it was well, well uh, worth it. Uh, we actually have Joel, and then we will take John Lee, who I I missed in the thread earlier, who I think also has a question on reparations. Uh, so Joel, and then John Lee, and then back to our our two guests. Yeah, thanks. I. I don't know if everyone can read the question I wrote, so just to explain what it was, I just was wondering about uh, how anyone in the discussion would assess the potential of the new Poor People's Campaign, which is, of course, reviving um, and revising in some ways the, the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. And I'm especially wondering if there's any possibility for a coalition of some kind or alliance between the the new poor people's campaign and organized labor and since i know reparations is about to come up i i think the poor people's campaign is not opposed to reparations but does have a a, a different focus but I, I i don't it's it's interesting that um i think it's it's a it's an approach that's different but is actually not um reacting against reparations as a demand so i just was curious about that as a as a topic for discussion thanks Thanks, Joel. And I actually know Joel. It is not Patty we're speaking with. It may be Patty's uh, laptop, but it's it's Joel, as far as I can tell. Um, so uh, last, I know it'll be a lot for our panelists, uh, for our guests, but John Lee, would you uh, like to ask a question as well? Yes, hi. Um, this question is for Professor Johnson, but of course, um, Claire can answer as well. But I was just wondering if there's a conceptual difference between, say, the national conversation around reparations compared to what took place with the uh, reparations ordinance in Chicago in 2015 for um, John Birch torture survivors. Could you repeat the end of that, John? I just, I missed the last, I think, key term there. I, I, maybe I'm not alone. Sure. Um, uh, the question is, um, is there a conceptual difference between, say, the national conversations around reparations compared to what took place with the reparations ordinance in Chicago for um, John Birch torture survivors. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, now at that time I heard it. Okay, uh, Cedric, you wanna take that first or Claire, you wanna jump in? Sure. We'll go, we'll go Cedric, Claire again as we've been doing. Unless Claire wants to go first. <laughs> I looked, I looked, I didn't see the, the telltale gesture. So we'll go so, so um let me start with reparations and then kind of work backwards um so i think there's not only is there a, a conceptual difference there's just a basic legal difference right that when we talk about john burge right this police officer on the south side of, of chicago presided over years of torture of, of black suspects um you know this th these are people who were directly harmed by burge and his regime and they had they were they they had a legal claim to redress and and I think in some sense they're more they were more akin to um, you know uh, Holocaust survivors and uh, survivors of the Japanese internment right that is that is concrete it is legal these people were survivors they had been inflicted you know uh, a particular kind of harm and they were making a claim for themselves right uh, you know and and. I think that's different, right? Even though I've, I've certainly heard people, some of my colleagues and other folks here in Chicago, talk about these things as though they're all the same. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's, they're the same. They're not the same. And I don't really think how it really helps other than as a way to point out that, you know, here's one victory. And then if we, if we achieve that one, 
then there's a possibility of scaling up to other kinds of forms of reparations. Um, I think we will actually see, I'm, I'm beginning to think more and more, we're going to see something like reparations uh, if, if Biden is elected and if um, the momentum from what we've witnessed the last month or so keeps up. The problem is it won't be what people are imagining, right? It will be more of national reckoning rhetoric and maybe a replay of the panel that Clinton uh, you know, pulled together in the 1990s. We'll probably see much more of the, the kind of um, top-down you know, black wealth creation version of it than anything else, right? Because again, those are the forces that are in play. We've already seen, you know, um, corporations donate upwards of two, you know, billion dollars and, and still counting. And it's not, it doesn't, it's not against their politics, right? It actually, this is where, you know, as I mentioned in, in one of the, later, the last pieces I wrote, this is where we see the convergence between Black Lives Matter as a particular kind of racial liberalism and the corporate liberalism that, you know, that has been around for a while. This isn't new. Um, I think we, we saw precursors of this just within the last few years with, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick's protests, which a lot of us were behind, but then Colin Kaepernick's, you know, I think $120 million Nike contract. This isn't, you know, this isn't a, a conflict for capital, right, to embrace a certain kind of extreme racial injustice, right, police killings. Um, it's something that they can get on board with, and they have gotten on board with it. We also saw it as well with, you know, still within the realm of American football, with Beyonce Knowles, you know, doing the 2016 um, Super Bowl, which people were going crazy about. But here she is doing a Super Bowl with all of the, the pageantry and, and costumes of the Black Power era for an institution that had basically fired somebody for his, his political views, right, his political stance. So I think... Um, I think we can't, uh, you know, we have to see these things as being very much conversant, right? That that they aren't, they aren't as uh, incompatible as we imagine them to to be. Um, the last thing I'll say about the poor people's campaign, and maybe this is picking up again on the problem of of liberalism. You know, I like I like uh, some of those ideas. Um, I like Reverend Barber. I think he's a force of good in the world. So this is not a, a criticism of him. But the original Poor People's Campaign was very much a, uh, an acceptance of that terrain of consumer society, acceptance of Cold War ideology and the way that people had stopped talking about class, where really most people assumed during that period that America is great, right? America is better than any other country. The, the economy, the market economy works for most people. The only stain on it is the fact of Jim Crow segregation and urban ghettos, right? And so the Poor People's Campaign is a response to that. It's interesting that it's not even in King's moment, and I know people like to sort of think about King's more socialist, uh, you know, um, tendencies, right? But the use of the, the notion of poverty was very much a liberal, liberal concept at that particular moment, right? It's something that comes to replace earlier ideas about class and class struggle, right? It, it becomes a way of saying that, again, the main problem with this, this country is that certain people have been excluded. It's not capital, right? You know, maybe it's greed, maybe it's indifference, but capital can be made to work for everybody. We just have to bring them in. And I think it's unfortunate that in 2020, some of us are still in that same place. I'm not saying that Barbara 
his entire you know perspective is limited to that but I think even talking about poverty is not enough, right? Talking about hunger is not enough. There's a reason why people are poor in this country and we should return to the explanations that we know are correct, right? That this is, an, this is a society, it's an economy that produces poverty, right? It's not, it's not an exception to what, what goes on here, but we should return to that instead of focusing on poverty. Poor people are simply, you know, as, um, you know, Michael Zweig said a long time ago, they're simply ruined workers, right? They're people who, who've been, you know, ground down by this particular kind of society and by um, the destruction of what little bit of a social uh, welfare state that we actually had in the United States. So that should be our focus, right? Not, not rehabilitating old, old liberal uh, arguments. Thanks for that, Cedric. And I'm really glad that you made reference to your, uh, your recent Jacobin article the article on blackwashing, which I think is a very interesting term, playing off of the notion of greenwashing, corporate kind of pseudo environmentalism, the notion of blackwashing in the wake of these uh, these recent protests. I also want to point out that some of what you know Cedric was just referencing, uh, we didn't get a chance to get into deep, but in terms of the black, the kind of myth and reality of the black power movements plural it, it itself, he really expounds it in in some de in great depth and detail. In a, in a book I can't recommend highly enough, which is Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of American Politics. And we could, we could do a whole other show on that. I had a couple questions we didn't get to. Um, Claire, let's, um, but please put it on your list. I think it's really important and I appreciate the, the complexity you draw out, even uncomfortable complexity where a lot of other people see the unity of a slogan, right? Which, you know, did some real uniting, but clearly didn't, didn't erase a lot of the historical uh, political social divisions as well. Claire, would you? There's a lot on the table from politics, activism, strategy versus therapy to the issue of reparations, the Poor People's Campaign. I mean, that certainly might be something from a union perspective to speak to. Pick. Uh, there's a lot on the table there, Claire. What would you like to speak to? Well, I'll just say something about the Poor People's Campaign and. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking of it because we have um, a chapter in the book Labor in the Time of Trump that's by Mary B. McMillan, who is the president of the North Carolina State AFL-CIO. Um, and it's interesting because she's really sort of like reflecting on the challenges and opportunities of building power in North Carolina and, you know, noting that if the labor movement wants to win, like you need to think about how do you organize in the South? You know, this is you know, a huge population region and it's growing as well. Um, and it's really larger than the Northeast and the Midwest combined. Um, and she, you know, she talks about also about how the South sort of disproportionately is contributing to the right-wing agenda. And her sort of, the way in which she talks about it, she basically argues that what you need to do is um, sort of like start small and specifically, she talks about the relationship between the state fed in North Carolina and the Poor People's Campaign as it began there before it was sort of a national movement and their role in supporting Moral Mondays and bringing together unions and allies to um, protest these legislative attacks against public education and voting rights. And, you know, she saw it as really as a foundation that ultimately contributed to the Democratic takeover of the state Supreme Court in North Carolina, as well as contributing to the um, ousting of the uh, incumbent Republican governor there. And, you know, in that way, I, I would say she, you should read the chapter. Um, but I think it's, a, you know, it's a really interesting look from the side of a labor leader thinking about what is the, you know, how working with this kind of campaign um, 
was ultimately supported, was ultimately led to sort of broader um, political change in the state. Um, the other thing I would just sort of speak quickly on, I guess, was this question about um, Janus. Somebody had asked about whether the Janus decision affected union strategy towards community organizing and the unemployed. Um, and just to just to say quickly, the Janus decision was a Supreme Court decision in 2018 that um, made all of the public sector right to work. So this means in all public sector unions, um, people actually have to um, opt in to be union members and there's no, um, there's no agency fee. So if you don't wanna be a part of the union, you don't have to pay anything. So prior to this, people would have to pay what was called an agency fee, which covered the costs of um, administering the collective bargaining agreement and uh, negotiating the agreement. And so it was always, you know, it was a big concern in 2018 that all of a sudden when, you know, Janus was passed that people were going to decide not to be union members because they didn't have to pay anything and they could still get the benefits. And, you know, I think there's, you know, it's still not clear how that will pay out. The huge drop that people worried about didn't happen. Um, and a lot of people decided that they would continue to pay dues even though they didn't have to. But I think, you know, what was critical in that time was that it did force unions to think about coming up with internal organizing plans and what it was that they were going to do to make sure that people saw the value of union membership and felt like they were a part of the union. And in that process, I think it did, you know, involve this sort of internal union engagement of thinking about how do we talk to people about what the union is and how do we get people to buy into this broader vision that what they're not just paying for is an insurance policy that protects them if they get in trouble at work. What they're paying for is to be part of an organization that does have these other aspects of, you know, supporting them in their community and also um, argue like, you know, fighting for broader um, social justice and public institutions. Yeah, thanks for that, Claire. I know in our in our public union at UMass Boston, our pre you know our previous leadership was really concerned about that. I mean, we all were that we would lose members because there's a financial incentive if you're already into union to jump ship because you get a better discount than you used to. But really, I, I we have not seen yet the the fall off in, in membership, and I think we it, actually the overall overall effect has been to make us more assertive in, in convincing people of the value of the union and not just in monetary terms, though. That's part of it too, I suppose, when you look at the contract gains. Um, really great points, um, great questions, y'all. I know there may be others out there, but we are nearing the end. And I, I promised our two great guests who have been with us for getting close to two hours now, uh, to that we would give them one chance to finish up by addressing kind of a vision question. I know we've, we've talked a lot about details of strategy and localities and, and laws. Uh, maybe we can step back a little bit and just have a moment to reflect, Cedric, and then Claire, uh, what is the, the vision you have for either the left that you would like to see us create, uh, or frankly, the society that you would like to see that left create, nationally, globally, however you want to frame it. And if you want to add to that one thing or one principle that you think people can bear in mind, or whether it's, you know, it doesn't have to be a motivating quote, but something, not necessarily a to-do ask, but something you'd like to leave re uh, reader, readers, I'm um, reading so much, uh, viewers and listeners with in terms of uh, you know, how we might get to that, to that world uh, that you'd like us to get to. Cedric? Save the easiest question for last, right? Yeah, that's right. You can write a book on this one too. 
Right. So I think, I think, uh, I mean, as much as I'm critical of, of, uh, you know, some of what we've seen over the last month, I actually think that there's a tremendous amount of potential in, in what we witnessed. Um, and I think it's possible for us to become a society where, um, you know, poverty is unthinkable, right? It doesn't exist. It's possible for us to get to a place where um, police killing of civilians is something that's only and mostly the, the subject of, of museum exhibits, right? Something that we'll talk about as a unit in, in future uh, course discussions in high school curricula, right? I think it's also possible for us to uh, reorganize our working lives and our creative capacities in a manner that that is joyful and rewarding to us as as human beings, right? I think all of those things are are possible. Um, we're of course a long way from that. I'm not really clear uh, as as far as how do we achieve that, given that we don't have a political party as working as a working class body, right? If we think that most Americans are are workers in some sense, um, we have two political parties that are very much the parties of, of capital with some exceptions every now and then. Um, so we still have a tremendous amount of work to be done. I think the only way that we, we can move forward is to, again, fight those fights that we have some capacity of, of winning. We can't engage in you know, a politics of bearing witness all the time or um, the kind of public therapy that was alluded to earlier as, as, as good as that might feel to us, right? We, we can't, we don't have the resources. We don't have the capacity to engage in those kinds of, of struggles. We need to constantly be focused on how do we improve the lives of the greatest number of, of people? How do we fight within whatever communities we live in to build, um, capacity and also to to take away some of the power and and to to uh, undermine the the power of capital to make various demands on our lives and on the world right on the planet and i think that's it's a tall order but i think the great thing about this moment we're living in is that there are millions of americans who who don't share the kind of of um Optimism, optimism about the American dream anymore, right? There are many young people who don't um, wish to become organization men in the ways that grandparents uh, once did. There are many people who are really clear about the limitations of this society and they want something different. But I think that's where uh, as union members, as intellectuals, as activists and citizens, we have a role to play, which is to try to bring um, the most effective solutions, the most effective uh, strategies for creating this better and more fulfilling and more just uh, form of society into being, right? I think that's the role that we have to play in this particular uh, moment. But I'll leave it there because I'm anxious to hear what Claire has to say. Great. Claire? Um, all right. Well, I, you know, when I first hear this question, um, you know, one of the a lot of the work I do is as a labor educator, so working a lot with, with unions doing education and trainings, a lot of political education particularly. Um, and you know, I'd say that in this vision piece, what my mind goes to is really just that, I think the short answer is sort of that we have to be raising people's expectations about what's possible. And then 
we need to really trust, educate, and train workers and rank and file union members to organize and fight. And I think what that vision is will develop out of that. And the fact that it is not, it doesn't need to be fully formed from the beginning. And I think it's through those conversations and through that struggle that it emerges and that we need to trust that 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 process is um, is how you get there. And, you know, on your other question about sort of, I think it was about resources or sort of um, where to point people to, um, you know, one of the things I would just say is I don't have anything specific, but I think it's really important to think about how you dig down where you already are. And for some people, you might have a workplace organization like a union, and you can dig down in that and become involved and engaged through that. And if you don't have that kind of organization, there's other community organizations within your community or within your schools or um, around you. And, and I think, you know, thinking locally about what are the existing organizations and that you don't need to create and start again, that there's ways to work through those structures that are already there, even if they might seem imperfect in the, in the moment. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Cedric. I thought those were both really profound comments and I uh, particularly want to unite with Claire's reference to digging deep or digging deep down. Uh, the name of the show is Shelter and Solidarity. After the, after the colon, it's a deep dive. And in fact, we originally thought about calling the show Dig Deep before we realized that that was taken by a couple of others. Um, but I think, I mean, you both speak profoundly to that. Uh, we hope that uh, everyone uh, in, that's listening and watching will continue to dig deep where they are uh, and come back and dive deep with us next week in our 13th episode of Shelter and Solidarity. We're entering our, I guess the math is, our fourth uh, month as a project here, an all-volunteer effort. We always, we welcome you to stick around. Those of you who are on live, once we stop recording in a few minutes, stick around and debrief. We are a voluntary radical transformative project, um, and we, we would love to have your participation. Next week, we will have, this is 13, I guess next week is 14, sorry. Um, I've just been corrected by one of our producers. Next week's show, uh, Shelter and Solidarity 14, is entitled, What Must Fall? Monuments and Our Struggles for Justice. We will be joined by Seren Mudliar, also one of the co-producers of this show, Ra Ross Caputi and Demita Frazier, who will be joining us next Thursday. We'll go back to our normal time of 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I think that show will also be a, a chance to address some things you were raising, MJ, about symbolism and structural strategy and the relationship between the two. I don't, I don't think we need to negate symbolism in order to, to put it in its proper place, right? So join us next week. I'd like to thank our producers, uh, Linda Liu, Sren Mutliar, Tim Sheard, our sponsoring organizations, the journal Socialism and Democracy, as well as the, the Labor Press magazine, the, the Press Hardball Press, which publishes working class stories, and last but not least, Encuentro Cinco, uh, located in Boston still, though they've had a move recently, and are uh, still a hub of revolution and organizing, and community organizing in Boston. Thank you all so much for being here. Stick around after the show if you'd like for a bit. Otherwise, hope to see you next week. Thanks to our guests. You know, thank you, Cedric. Thank you, Claire.
like a girl. 